Like if you think about, um, I'm trying to think of an example here. We'll edit this out because I can't think of a good example of that. No problem. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to Cheap Talk. My name is Jeff Kaplow. I'm an associate professor of government here at William & Mary. And joining me, as always, is my esteemed colleague, Marcus Holmes. Hello, Marcus. How are you? Hi, Jeff. I'm doing pretty well. Uh, as we're recording this, the weather is, is quite nice in Williamsburg. We had a, a little bit of a crummy weather week last week, but I feel like we're now hitting like that kind of prime fall where it's still warm. It's not exactly summer. It's not hot. It's not too humid, but it's not cold yet. You could be outside. It's sunny. It's great. I'm in a good mood. How are you? I'm in a good mood, too. Um, before we get into it, I just wanted to give a shout out to listener Mary from, let me see, Queenstown, Maryland, who mm. is celebrating today as we record her 101st birthday. And I, uh, I don't have great data on this, Marcus, but judging from the Spotify analytics that say which bands are listeners like to listen to when they're not listening to our podcast. I'm going to yeah. hazard a guess that Mary might be our oldest listener at 101. But if, if you're listening to this and you are, uh, you can beat that. You're older than 101 years old. Um, send us a note, let us know, and we will correct the record. See, yeah, this actually doesn't, this doesn't surprise me. I would, I would anticipate and hazard a guess that we're very popular among the centenarians. And I think that's because these are people who are wise and they have good taste uh, and they're, they're curious about the world. And so they tune in to this podcast. So that, that does not surprise me in the least. Happy birthday. Happy birthday. Um, yeah. it's a, it's a good day. Uh, so we have a couple of listener questions to, to get to. Thanks to everyone for sending in your, in your questions. Um, let me start with a question from Emma from Brentwood, Tennessee. And Emma asks, does recent U S political dysfunction affect U S foreign policy? And I don't, I mean, it's hard to pick. I don't know exactly what Emma is referring to here. This is an evergreen kind of question. Um, <laughs> maybe Emma is talking about the uh, recent ouster of uh, House Speaker Kevin McCarthy. Maybe, maybe Emma is talking about the multiple indictments um, of the former president, uh, Donald Trump and Republican frontrunner for the, for the uh, nomination for the next election. Mm -hmm. um, maybe it was the, near miss in terms of shutting the government down um and that was narrowly um stopped at the at the last minute for at least or stalled for at least 45 days mm -hmm. um so many possible political dysfunctions to choose from here in here in the United States but it probably doesn't matter i guess the kind of general question is how does this dynamic of the US political system not seeming like it's super healthy um how does that affect U.S. and foreign policy and maybe international security generally. Mark, do you want to kick us off on this one? <laughs> well, I want to thank Emma for a great question. It's also like uh, an incredibly big question. So we, we tackle these a lot here on the pod. You know, I, I feel like last week when we were talking about does the U.N. work, uh, that, that's also a big question. So we're not afraid to tackle the, the big questions in international relations. No, the hard questions. Can you come here first for, to answer to the hard questions? And, and Exactly. Exactly. We don't deal with the small stuff. And last week we solved the whole U.N. thing, if I recall exactly. correctly. So, yeah, that's right. We came to consensus on it. Um, okay, so I, I think it's undoubtedly the case that domestic politics generally uh, affects foreign policy generally, 
through, you know, a couple of sort of obvious ways, right? So, so clearly, like, who the head of state is is a function of, you know, domestic politics. Um, in the United States, you have, you know, Congress makes a lot of decisions uh, or at least has oversight on, you know, U.S. Uh, presidents and what they're able to do from a foreign policy perspective. The U.S. does have a system where the, the head of state has a fair amount of autonomy from foreign policy stuff. But for big decisions, big funding bills, you know, major changes to the Defense Department and what they're going to fund, that often needs congressional approval. Uh, and so, so, you know, you can think about, you know, sort of domestic dysfunction at, in the congressional level having a, an impact on, on foreign policy. So there's a sort of general kind of ways in which, you know, it's, it seems, you know, sort of self-evident that political problems at the domestic level might hamper or change U.S. Uh, foreign policy. But I, I think there's actually... You know, if, you, if we think about some historical examples, um, I think there are cases where it seems like there probably was a major effect, but it's not obvious uh, exactly what that effect was or, or you know, what, how, it, how it, you know, sort of manifested, right? So let me give you one where I do think it's fairly obvious. So the Vietnam, Vietnam War, you know, as it's going on over time, the U.S. public, um, you know, starts to become more and more... Uh, sort of cautious about U.S. In involvement. You get more and more reports about, you know, things that are happening on the ground and, and some of the tragedies that are occurring uh, in Vietnam. And basically the public opinion about the war starts to, to, to go down. And I think as, a, as that happens and it gets harder for the U.S. policymakers to make the case that the United States needs to be in Vietnam, that in some sense emboldens the Soviet Union, emboldens North Vietnam to keep up their resolve because what they perceive is U.S. resolve probably weakening, right? So I think that's a cl fairly clear example. And I'm sure there are historians that might disagree with this, but, but my take on the Vietnam War is that you know, sort of decreasing um, uh, sentiment for being in the war probably did lead to, lead to redoubled efforts or more resolve on the part of who the United States was fighting, which in this case is the Soviet Union and, and the North Vietnamese. So that's an example, I think, of one that's fairly clear. The other one that gets brought up a lot uh, in thinking about sort of like domestic dysfunction is, is Nixon um, and the Watergate scandal. So, you know, for the listeners who, who don't know what this was, you know, Nixon was embroiled in this, you know, uh, sort of domestic level um, sort of spying uh, scandal. And he had, you know, sort of all his enemies that he was you know, trying to spy on and it, it got leaked and all that. And, it, and when that happened, um, a lot of people, you know, sort of said like, this is really going to hurt Nixon, which it ultimately did. But just more generally, the sort of chaos at the time of not knowing whether Nixon was going to be impeached, leave office, if he's going to stay in office, how, how powerful would he be, the, the congressional sort of oversight of Nixon, all of this stuff was, was up in the air. And some people made the argument that as this was you know, happening during the Cold War, this was an opportunity for the Soviet Union to say, aha, we have a weakened United States. The domestic system in the United States, the political system is completely dysfunctional. Now is our opportunity to uh, do something about it. We're going to have more resolve. We're going we're gonna to sort of take advantage of the situation. And you can look at things that were happening at the time when the Soviet Union did exactly uh, uh, do those things, uh, you know, sort of from a surface level, right? So like Angola, they started to like, you know, do be, uh, more forceful and, and backing, you know, the sort of anti-US uh, contingent there. They did more things in the, in the Middle East. Afghanistan, you know, would come later, but that's like part of the, the whole story. They also, at the same time, were building up their arms, right? So... As you know, during the Cold War, you know, Soviet Union was building up their nuclear arsenal. We were building up ours and so on. But the problem with that view is that at the same time that this was all happening, detente and the idea of sort of like trying to develop better relations with the Soviet Union and start to uh, craft some agreements about, 
you know, the, the limits of nuclear weapons were also happening at the same time. So it's, it's one of these sort of complicated situations where Nixon's political uh, uh, sort of dysfunction is at its highest. The domestic political situation in the United States is really, really bad. You might then say this is the perfect opportunity for the Soviet Union to take advantage of this type of situation. And in some cases, I think you can make the argument that they did. But at the same time, they're also cooperating with the United States uh, to a large extent. And it, at that period is where you start getting these talks that would lead to the SALT agreement uh, and stuff like that. So I think my, my point in this, these two historical examples are that it's, it's undoubtedly the case that there are you know, causal pathways for the domestic you know, sort of political dysfunction or just domestic politics more generally affecting the, the international foreign policy and how our adversaries and allies look at the situation and, and make decisions about how they're going to interact with the United States. But it's oftentimes not clear exactly how and exactly what sort of decisions were made by adversaries vis-a-vis the United States, you know, based on that on that dysfunction. So a long winded way of saying, Emma, I think your intuition is incredibly correct. Uh, but I do think this is kind of a very tricky thing to tease apart exactly the, the mechanisms by which this affects both U.S. foreign policy, but also how av- allies and adversaries are making their foreign policy with respect to the United States. Emma is, I think, tapping into a question that's kind of been out there in the public a little bit recently with what seems like even more U.S. dysfunction than normal. So I'll put a link in the show notes to a news analysis in the New York Times today, uh, headline to the world, McCarthy's exit is just another example of U.S. disarray. And this essay, I guess, analysis by Peter Baker in the New York Times kind of walks through some of the issues in U.S., political life right now and the impact that may be having on how other countries view the United States. And the perspective here is maybe a little different than the one you were laying out, Marcus, because it's the the article leads off with with this uh, wonderful paragraph, quote, there was a time not that long ago when the United States presumed to teach the world how it was done, when it held itself up as a model of a stable, predictable democracy, when it sent idealistic young avatars to distant parts of the globe to impart the American way. Um, thus begins Peter Baker basically saying these days that's not happening, right, because we're no longer an effective example of of a democracy. Um, so there's this idea of the United States as like the castle on the hill or the city on the hill, city on the hill, this uh, uh, example for the world of how uh, countries should be run. That, I think, is um, overwrought and probably uh, just wrong historically, right, in terms of how uh, both others saw the United States and actual U.S. effectiveness in, like, uh, demonstrating an example to to the world. There's another piece out right now, um, came out last week, by a guy named Robert Gates, who uh, coincidentally is the chancellor of the College of William and Mary. Um, Don't ask me what chancellor it does or is. He also is a former uh, Secretary of Defense. And this is an article in Foreign Affairs entitled, The Dysfunctional Superpower, Can a Divided America Deter China and Russia? And he raises a number of questions about how internal political strife in the United States might make it harder for the U.S. to achieve foreign policy goals in the world. So dysfunction isn't new in U.S. politics, as you as you kind of laid out, right? Uh, we have seen dysfunction, you know, over and over again. I mean, maybe it's relatively bad now. Maybe it's not. I don't know exactly how how to measure that. But certainly, the idea that the United States has some political difficulties is is not a new thing. Nor is it a unique thing to the United States, right? Like lots of countries in the world have had and or do have 
uh, kind of political divisions that may affect foreign policy. Um, so given that this is not new, I guess the question is, is this a is this a uniquely bad time in U.S. political dysfunction in a way that interacts with current issues in U.S. foreign policy? So like dysfunction on its own isn't necessarily enough, right? It has to be the sort of dysfunction that's going to affect U.S. foreign policy broadly. One, one uh, piece of this Robert Gates article kind of struck me. I'm quoting now from, from the Robert Gates piece in Foreign Affairs. Sadly, however, America's political dysfunction and policy failures are undermining its success. The U.S. economy is threatened by runaway federal government spending. Politicians from both parties have failed to address the spiraling cost of entitlements, such as Social Security, Medicare, and Medicaid. Perennial opposition to raising the debt ceiling has undermined confidence in the economy, causing investors to worry about what would happen if Washington actually de defaulted. The appropriations process in Congress has been broken for years. Legislators have repeatedly failed to enact individual appropriations bills, passed gigantic omnibus laws that no one has read, and forced government shutdowns. Robert Gates seems to be implying here that this kind of political dysfunction has an effect on U.S. foreign policy. And I will say my response to this is no way. No way are other countries looking at the U.S. House's failure to pass individual funding bills rather than an omnibus and saying, oh, look at the weakness of U.S. policy. Look at the political dysfunction in the United States. Look at how they only averted a shutdown at the last minute. Time to strike while the U.S. is weak. Right. I, I really don't think that that level of legislative detail is shining signal to any other country that America is rife for the picking, right? That, that we're weak and can be taken on. Uh, now, I think Gates goes on to argue that, like, some of the issues with budget affects the ability of the military to, like, do reforms and stuff. I also don't agree with that, frankly. The U.S. military seems to have no trouble spending money despite the uh, political dysfunction at home. But, yeah, like, could it be more efficient? Sure. But is this uh, of the level that we should worry about at an international security level? Uh, I, I'm not sure it is. So I, I think just to go back to my kind of framing of this as an interaction between U.S. political dysfunction and foreign policy, I think there are a couple of areas where our current dysfunction really does have clear impacts on U.S. policy abroad. Uh, the first one, maybe we can talk about each of these, but the, the first one, I think, is the U.S. commitment to, to Ukraine, the political back and forth of which was on a display when it came to the recent issues in the House in terms of averting a government shutdown and ousting uh, Kevin McCarthy, who uh, the, the former Speaker of the House, who was accused by some Republicans as uh, having cut a secret deal on Ukraine funding with the Biden administration. So I think here's an area where the dysfunction threatens a real U.S. foreign policy goal in terms of signaling ongoing support to Ukraine, not just in terms of like, well, they need this money and they need this support in order to prosecute the war effectively, but because Russia seems to be kind of waiting to see whether Ukraine is going to have the support of the United States and the West going forward, because if in the long term it doesn't have that support, then that really strengthens Russia's hand. And so one reason we might see this war persist is because the U.S. is demonstrating potentially to foreign countries that it is not able to maintain its support for Ukraine in the long term. Well, Jeff, uh, you've covered a lot of territory there. I, I want to make uh, three Maybe four points. The first one is exactly what you just said. So I think if the, the clearest 
implication, it seems to me, of what's going on in the United States in the moment, right? So in, in October of 2023, is if I'm Zelensky and I'm, I'm watching the U.S. political process from afar, I, I don't care about the intricacies of, you know, McCarthy versus some other speaker or, you know, Trump comes in and becomes speaker. Of the House. I, that, that part doesn't really, you know, who it is is sort of less interesting to me than what bills are going to be able to be passed and like what, what level of support is the president uh, going to have and who is the next president going to be, right? So these are the, the sort of like the funding questions, regardless of, you know, the sort of intricacies of how much dysfunction there is, are we going to be able to see continued support for Ukraine monetarily and also uh, in terms of weapons? That's the big question. And so to the extent to which this dysfunction has some sort of interaction with that, I think, you know, Zelensky uh, would, would be concerned and probably should be very concerned as many Democrats and liberals are very concerned because they, they want to see continued support for, for Ukraine. But, you know, getting back to this like broader sort of discussion about dysfunction, I mean, I think I think part of the problem is also conceptual and it's sort of definitional. You know, the, the, the U.S. was set up in a way uh, in the Constitution to kind of set up divided government. Right. Clearly, the framers had this idea of, you know, sort of the balance of power between the House and Senate. And so, you know, you wanted to have, you know, a non-unified government from time to time. And that would put, you know, checks and balances into the whole system. Kind of the point of the U.S. model was really about no one having that much power because you, if, if you had divided government, it would be these checks and you wouldn't be able to do things. So then you might say, OK, well, that's not that's not what I mean by dysfunction. I don't mean divided government. Well, then, like, well, what is it that you mean? Is it that you mean that you know, the United States can't pat, pass debt ceiling uh, uh, legislation. I, I would agree that would be somewhat dysfunctional, although the United States has been- We failed to address the spiraling costs of entitlements, such as Social Security, <laughs> Medicare, right. Medicaid. Right, right. I guess my- Commence the bombing run. I guess my point is, is if, if that is dysfunction, then that seems to be like an ever-present, you know, feature of not just the United States, but but likely, you know, most democracies and, and right. sort of like, you know, it's just like this capitalist systems and democracies kind of kind of work this way. But I, I was thinking as you were talking, and not that I wasn't listening, but I was thinking about, you know, cases where, you know, it, it, moments of, of low dysfunction, right? So like, what are some cases where there were low months of dysfunction? And so if you define it in a sort of divided or unified government way, you might think back to like when, when Republicans controlled, you know, the house and Senate, right? So you think about like the George W. Bush administration, um, in like the mid 2000s, Republicans had a lot of control. Like there was dysfunction in the sense that liberals and Democrats were very unhappy. But, you know, the Republicans uh, basically had this unified government. And that's that period led to the Iraq war. That period led to a lot of increased polarization as a result of the Iraq war and those polarization before that, of course, the 2000 election. But, you know, it's like that that doesn't seem to be like a moment in time where like our foreign policy was particularly great. And you can make the argument that if it's divided government, that's the problem. Well, that was unified government. So it's also likely the case that if you have divided government, you still get some U.S. foreign policy ones. So I'm, I'm not convinced that uh, there's anything in particular you know, about like divided or undivided government that's going to tell you much about how U.S. foreign policy plays out. Can I add a third wrinkle or a fourth wrinkle or a fifth wrinkle to this discussion? Sure. And this, this, might, this might blow your mind, Jeff. Our friend Gurevich has this uh, argument from a long time ago, this sort of second image reversed, right? And the idea is sort of like the opposite of what we're talking about. What, what we're talking about is how the domestic level, that second image, uh, sort of affects the third level of the international system because what's going on in your you know, Congress or, or your presidency uh, is going to have an effect on U.S. foreign policy. And so we, I think we all agree there is some effect, and we've been sort of interrogating what that effect is. 
His idea is that sometimes, and maybe actually a lot of the time, that this reverses itself and that the international level or what's going on in, in you, you know, the, the foreign policy realm actually has an effect on domestic politics. Um, if you look at it through this lens, you know, you, you start to see like, well, maybe part of our problem in the United States, part of the dysfunction that Gates and others are talking about is actually a function of increased Russian uh, aggression, increased Russian sort of um, resolve, and the U.S. not really knowing how to deal with that and sort of discussion and debate about what that means. Increase China resolve, like increase, you know, uh, 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 exercises in the South China Sea, a sense in which maybe, you know, they're going to be more aggressive vis-a-vis -vis Taiwan might add into this sort of causal effect of the United States not really knowing what to do and being nervous and have different disagreements about our standing in the world and how we should, you know, be responding to these, these threats, right? So at the end of the Cold War, you know, the United States emerges as this unipolar power that lasts for a while. I make the argument that we're still in a unipolar power based on conventional capabilities and nuclear weapons, but we could, we could have that debate another time. But if you have the view that we are now in sort of a multipolar world, you might think that the United States looks around and says, geez, I see threats everywhere. I see a highly complex, uncertain international system. I see Russia becoming more bold, China becoming more bold. It's not coincidental then that our domestic politics would be dysfunctional because we don't know how to respond to that. There's not a, an easy sort of like cheat sheet about what you do in a multipolar world when you face all these adversaries. So I think there's this new sort of element we can add to this session, which is the causal arrow might be going the other direction to a certain extent. And it's the international system that is causing a little bit of our, our dysfunction. I will say, I don't think you want to go too far down that road. I think it's an interesting idea. There's probably some truth to it. I don't think it explains everything. I don't explain, think it explains McCarthy's troubles. Um, but there's no question in my mind that a lot of the, the sort of Trump support um, and, and the, the Gates of the world and people like that, not Robert Gates, but the, the other Gates in, in Congress, have, you know, Ukraine connections and Russia connections and China connections. That's having some type of an effect on the polarization of the United States. Yeah, I'm, I'm a little more skeptical, I think, of the second image reverse idea as it applies to our current political dysfunction. You know, I, I'm more likely to abide by the maxim that all politics are local. I'm not sure I believe this idea that the U.S. public is suitably tuned in to what's going on internationally to have that be an effective driver of political issues in the United States. But I, I do agree that kind of different U.S. political factions seek to capitalize on what is happening in the world for their own purposes and kind of use potential conflict with China, issues with Russia, things like this as a way to kind of uh, draw lines of difference with the other, other side of the aisle. Um, and I think that's true even if you drop all that pseudoscience stuff about polarity and Mm. that you just kind of uh, spouted. Um, so, you know, that the idea that Russia is a polarizing kind of figure in um, Republican politics right now, splitting the Republican caucus is is true. But is, it, is that because Russia is doing something that's making that happen or because it's a convenient way to kind of split parts of the, the caucus. I don't know. Um, so I, I, I hear you. I think another piece of this, though, that we should mention when it comes to political dysfunction and its interaction with current U.S. policy issues is the, the candidacy of, of former President Trump for, for president again, uh, because Trump uh, has such a different 
foreign policy orientation and perspective than all other potential candidates, frankly, that it has an effect on how other countries treat the United States, because there's this idea that, well, if they just hang out long enough, um, they're going to see a different kind of an administration in terms of foreign policy, for, for better or for worse. So for some, for some um, countries, that's good news. For some countries, that's bad news. And I think that's maybe part of Trump's appeal as well to, to some of his constituents. But uh, the idea that, like, you know, if you're Saudi Arabia or Russia and you can wait it out and Trump wins the election, that really changes the United States orientation to those countries. Other countries like um, NATO allies, for example, may see Trump coming back into power as such a dangerous thing that they can't count on U.S. support long term because of the prospect of Trump's return to the presidency. And so in that sense, the if you can call the current situation with former President Trump political dysfunction, and it's a lot of things, I, I don't know if that's the best way to describe it in terms of the president being you know, having multiple indictments, but also being a candidate and and all of the kind of um, angst that's wrapped up in that, that very likely could have an effect on key U.S. foreign policy issues with regard to China, Russia, NATO, Saudi Arabia, Middle East, etc. So I, I think that's another kind of piece of this, where there's some truth to the idea that U.S. political dysfunction might matter in the world. Oh, I completely agree. I mean, I think if, if there is one sort of big you know, elephant in the room, if we, if we look forward to U.S. foreign policy over the next couple of years, it's, it's who's going to be the next president. Is it going to be Biden? Is it going to be another Democrat? Is it going to be Trump or another Republican? Because it's, it's, I think almost at this point, self-evident that if Trump, for example, becomes president, that U.S. foreign policy towards NATO and Russia and Ukraine, I think is going to change substantially. I mean, I, we, we could be wrong. Like, it's, it's possible, actually, that, you know, we, when he retakes office, you know, he suddenly just discovers that, you know, supporting Ukraine at a, at a continued level uh, is the right thing to do. I don't think most people think that's going to happen. And so if you are, you know, Zelensky, certainly you're worried about this. Uh, if you're Putin, you're keeping an eye on it. And, and I think presumably hoping that it happens. Uh, but also, as you alluded to, and I think this is maybe as important, if you're a NATO country who has been sort of on the edge of like the level of support and maybe not comfortable with what we've we've been doing. Uh, want to kind of maybe take a step back, want to sort of, you know, respond to some domestic pressure to maybe, you know, not be giving uh, as much you know, military aid or, or financial aid, then that's also an interesting position to be in. You might think that Trump becoming president, while not great for NATO generally, I don't think in terms of the alliance, would be for individual countries, um, maybe, maybe a little bit of a saving grace because they're able to step back their support just as the United States likely, likely would. So I think there are a lot of... Um, a lot of implications for, for Trump becoming becoming president. And that's that is a separate question to me. It's tied to the McCarthy. So it's tied to Congress. Um, but, you know, Trump was was leading in the Republican polls uh, before the McCarthy situation. He's going to be leading in the Republican polls after the McCarthy situation. Uh, and so I, I don't think they're connected in that way. But I do no. think, you know, political dysfunction at the highest level uh, certainly certainly has a point. Can I put in something that I forgot to say earlier and you're going to do your magic and put it back in the, earlier in the podcast? Do you have that capability? I'm not sure I do, but I, <laughs> you can certainly say something you forgot to say earlier. Go for it. I, the most, I, I can't believe that I forgot about this, this example because I talk about this in my class. I've written about this in my, in my book and elsewhere. And, the, in the, and I, know, I know people are sick of me talking about Ronald Reagan in the 1980s, but in, 19, in 1985 – Ronald Reagan was embroiled in something called the Iran-Contra affair. So, like, there's this huge, huge, like, level of dysfunction 
right? Like political dis- – if you were looking at it from the outside, you'd say, oh, my goodness. Like look at this. The president is embroiled in this scandal. U.S. politics are a complete mess. Everything is, is a total disaster. And what is happening in 1985, 1986, 1987 internationally? Reagan is meeting with Mikhail Gorbachev in Geneva and Reykjavik in Washington and basically ending the Cold War in peaceful terms. So so this idea that, you know, oh, it's like political dysfunction domestically is going to hamper your U.S. foreign policy. I don't I, I think this is another example of that not not playing out. We're actually one of the most you know beneficial outcomes. One of those important outcomes of the 20th century is being negotiated uh, while all of this stuff at home is is happening. And so. I don't think I don't see the Soviet Union kind of taking advantage of the political dysfunction at that time. I think that they were looking at it and saying, boy, you know, that's too bad for Reagan, but we still want to make this deal and we still want to have this happen. So anyway, I, I, I can't believe I forgot about that one. But that's a, that's another counterexample to the argument that dysfunction necessarily leads to sort of worse U.S. Uh, foreign policy. There's a possibility that dysfunction leads to a better U.S. foreign policy. I mean, the thing with with the House not allowing funding. So for those who weren't paying attention to the minutiae of this, the Senate bill to extend uh, the government funding for 45 days included $6 billion for Ukraine and Ukraine support. The House version of that did not. That led to some discussion among Democrats, whether this should be supported or not, whether they should hold out for funding for Ukraine. Ultimately, they supported that continuing resolution. And so there is no you know, next tranche of, of funding for Ukraine at the moment, the hope will be for those who support that funding that they'll be able to get it into the next the next time that, that government funding is extended. But, you know, one possible outcome of this is Western European countries see the U.S. kind of not able to pull through with some of this funding. And Germany says, OK, we're going to start picking up the slack uh, and make a, a stronger commitment to Ukraine and basically say, even if the U.S. can't get new funding through, we're going to take care of it. That would be a beneficial result for U.S. foreign policy, even if it's driven by by U.S. dysfunction. So, you know, it's hard to it's hard to know exactly how these things all shake out in, in the real world. Exactly. Uh, we have another question to get to. This is from Aiden from Mountain View, California. Aiden asks, with more countries launching satellites and planned and planning manned missions to space. How are space laws and diplomatic relations shaping up? Uh, just to add a little bit of a current events hook to this uh, to this question, which is a good question from Aiden, I will put a link in the show notes to some news reports coming out of a new book, Biography of Elon Musk by Walter Isaacson. And uh, some excerpts from that book show that Elon Musk, who is the, the head of SpaceX, uh, which runs a satellite-based internet connectivity service called Starlink, um, that Elon Musk refused to allow Ukrainian military to use Starlink for the purposes of a drone attack on a base in Crimea. Um, that is, Elon Musk basically was able to cancel a Ukraine attack on Russian forces by refusing the use of this service. Um, and I think this ties into the question of, that, that Aiden asks about, you know, the increasing use of space and space laws and diplomatic relations as a um, at space as a contact point for diplomatic relations today. So, Marcus, uh, what do you think about this question? Um, what is the future of diplomacy in space? Will we all be um, will we have some summits on the space station? How's that, what's that going to look like? <laughs> so it's on the- face to face diplomacy, right? This is a, I, you know. 
you, you kid. However, I think that this is a good grant uh, opportunity. If any, if any students are interested and want to jump in on this at the ground level, let me know. How much funding would we need to have our, our yeah, space summit? summits? Yeah. Space summits. Uh, okay. So I, I think the question is a good one. And I want to go back to the phrasing of the question because I think it's actually pretty appropriate. It was, how are space laws and diplomatic relations shaping up? I my assessment, and you know, I'm not an expert in this in this area, but my assessment is that they're not shaping up all that well uh, for a couple of different reasons. So um, the main there there are a number of different sort of international agreements uh, and and treaties and principles about space. The main one though was created in 1967. It's called the Outer Space Treaty. And if you read that, uh, and I was looking at it, you know, before the the pod started, if you go back and like read what that that talks about. It's it's very much a product of the 1960s, right? So it's like laying out some core kind of ideas. So there's some principles here. Outer space, including the moon, uh, and presumably like other planets and stuff, cannot be uh, like sovereignty of a, of a country, right? So the United States can't go put a flag on the moon, although I think we, we did do that, but, and say like, this is ours. Like we own the moon now. A small uh, fact check though, Marcus. Okay, there fact is check also, There is also a moon treaty. Oh, that, there's a moon treaty that governs. Yes, the agreement governing the activity of states. It must have came. It must have come and later. Other celestial bodies, which was uh, a late seventies, early eighties thing. Mm. So just just to throw that in there. But please continue. Okay, so we do have a moon with specific provisions for the moon. That's good yeah. to know. Um, the other thing that it talks about is like space exploration. You know, is uh, like a public good. Like it should benefit mankind. You're not supposed to use it for like war purposes. Uh, you can't do things that are contaminated like you have to do you know it's it's all about this idea of like creating a, the space is like a public good for for exploration and most importantly you can't put nuclear weapons up there and you know try to try to blow up uh the planet so that's and there's other things in it but those are sort of like the key things that i i took from from that treaty and i think much of that is relevant today um i think much of it is you know sort of important to have as key principles but there are there are changes in technology that you just couldn't have expected in the, in the 1960s, right? So, like one of them, I think, is uh, you know just how easy it is for non-state actors to get involved in uh, space. So whether it's like space tourism, whether it's you know putting up like private satellites, uh, whether it's doing things that we don't even know about yet because we haven't seen them, but like you know they're they're working on them in private companies. Elon Musk is always up to, to something, right? So like maybe there's some some new technology that he's going to you know launch into space. We don't really have a treaty. Uh, that's kind of kind of up to date with respect to the the emergence of non-state actors and companies uh, in this space. And a lot of the sort of worries of the 1960s about nuclear weapons, it's not that those like we're, we're not concerned about nuclear weapons in space anymore. But like our concerns today are much more about things like, as you point out, like Internet access and sort of dual use technologies. And so if we have a satellite that's providing, you know, Internet activities and it's it's sort of intended for civilian use, but then we find out actually this can be used by militaries and uh, resistance groups and rebels and maybe bad guys. Like what? How do we, how does that work? Like are we allowing you know sort of satellites to be used for dual dual use purposes if military applications um, are are a feature or a potential feature of these of these technologies? So so I would say what what the United States and other leading powers you know need to do is come back to the sort of negotiating table. Uh, at some point, I think this is a not a likely time this is going to happen. But at some point, sort of like get get a get a a renewed sort of treaty or set of treaties that really look specifically at you know commercial use in space, uh, other non-state actors, satellites specifically, to just make sure that we're sort of updated for 
um, um, the present period. So my sense is we're, we're behind. Like the diplomacy in space is, is a little bit behind. It's not that there's not efforts being made. There are, there are plenty of, of diplomats um, and international organizations that are, are, and even NGOs, looking at like space diplomacy. But my sense is that we're a little bit behind the times with respect to what has actually been uh, agreed to. So, I, I mean, there are so many different ways to look at, at the, this question. So I, I, right. I, you know, highlighted the Elon Musk story because this is one way in which space and satellites uh, affects on the ground international security in, in a way that we might not have, have anticipated, that it would be hard to write a treaty around, for example, because it's commercial enterprise. I'm not sure how important this particular story is in kind of the grand scheme of the questions of like the militarization of space, which is something that international security analysts talk a lot about. So there are a number of ways that that space is becoming like the next battlefield, right? And, and U.S. military and other militaries are so reliant on satellite capabilities for command and control purposes that it, it makes space like a really important domain for projecting power, for using your military forces. And so any kind of military capability that threatens that domain becomes a threat to U.S. military forces. So, for example, U.S. command and control systems that are space-based, that are satellite-based, um, that control U.S. nuclear weapons forces, if those were attacked by an anti-satellite weapon system, the U.S. would consider that, and this is in a, a kind of an older nuclear posture review, would consider that kind of equivalent to a first strike on U.S. nuclear forces. That is, th this is cut so close to the bone in terms of the U.S. ability to use its military forces, that we would treat that kind of a space attack as equivalent to like a real attack um, on, uh, on U.S. forces in the world. So, you know, big area of discussion when we talk about space law is around um, anti-satellite weapons. So you mentioned the the Outer Space uh, Treaty, the Outer Space Treaty bans weapons of mass destruction in space. And it was kind of one of the first uh, nuclear weapons free zones. So say like, OK, don't put your nuclear weapons in space. That actually seems like a really good idea just from a from a policy perspective. Like, I'm glad they did that. Yeah, yeah, you don't need like like failed nuclear weapons like plummeting to Earth uh, accidentally. Um, so I, I like that they did that. But the Outer Space Treaty doesn't ban other kinds of military forces in space. Um, and of particular concern to policymakers are um, anti-satellite weapon systems that kind of go into space and blow up a satellite. And one of the reasons that that's a concern is that it creates all this space debris that threatens other kinds of things we're doing in space, including other kinds of communication satellites and has the potential of affecting of kind of coming down to Earth in ways that are that are unpleasant. So there's a lot of debris out there in space. And the idea of these anti-satellite weapons creating more is uh, potentially worrisome. And so the U.S. has proposed and actually the General Assembly voted on and approved an idea to ban the testing of anti-satellite weapon systems. So a couple of countries have done this where they've sent up explosives and blown up a satellite in, in orbit to demonstrate that they can do it. But that creates a lot of debris and a lot of problems. Other countries, enough other countries have gotten on board with this, that this is like a real initiative that, you know, you could imagine as some kind of um, legal restriction in the future. Uh, so this is one area where space diplomacy is happening, right? And trying to limit the kinds of things that can occur in space. This kind of thing, it would be hard, I think, to capture with an international agreement all of the ways countries might try to act 
in the space domain in terms of international security, from hacking into communication satellites uh, to kind of nudging satellites out of the way to intercepting signals to blinding them with lasers. Those are all things that countries have done and are thinking of doing. And it would be difficult to get enough countries to sign on to a treaty that bans this stuff because it seems really useful if you're being attacked by a country that is having its communications facilitated by space-based assets, then taking out those space-based assets is one way to limit the damage that country can do. And we see this with the Starlink case, where a real limit on Ukraine's ability to control drones in the field is their ability to get internet access through Starlink. And if they had their own state-owned satellite constellation that could provide command and control support to their forces, then um, that would be better for them, right? Because they wouldn't have to rely on Elon Musk to, to supply that. But it also would be a juicy target for Russia, which has an anti-satellite capability. So there is a kind of back and forth on this question of, you know, could we get enough countries to, to get on board an agreement to limit the, these kinds of weapons in space in the future? Yeah, I, I agreed with with everything you said. I mean, I, I personally worry about the escalation of tensions um, that the militarization of space could could cause, right? And even if you're doing it in sort of you know quasi or alleged defensive uh, uh, purposes, that that still has the potential to, to escalate things, right? So one of my favorite examples from from the 1980s is Strategic Defense Initiative, which we've talked about on this pod before, Star Wars, the the, the idea the U.S. was going to be able to develop you know ground based and space based. Systems that will allow us to uh, basically, you know, knock out nuclear weapons that were launched by the Soviet Union, um, and space was going to be a part of that. And it was, it was from the U.S.'s perspective, an obvious sort of like, you know, defensive uh, uh, system. But the Soviets didn't see it that way. They're like, you know, I, uh, you're telling me you got missiles that, that hit our missiles. Like, I don't see that as particularly defensive. But it also means that if if we have the ability to take out their first strike capability, then that's that's not really like defensive anymore, because now they're saying now they could, we have the ability to have a first strike on them. And so therefore, you know, this system is is we don't like it. And they were very vocal about not liking it. Um, and so like the space, even in, in instances where you are developing things, you know, for peaceful purposes, have the potential due to, you know, the, the inability to sort of, you know, perceive intentions correctly of, of escalating things when you don't intend them, right? So this is, you know, gets back to security dilemma stuff and all that. And then I see space as this sort of, you know, frontier where because there's a lack of treaties um, and because there's a lack of agreement on some of these issues, it's rife for uh, escalation, um, uh, you know, tendencies. I also draw a parallel to, to uh, the Arctic, right? This is another area where people have kind of discussed some similar kind of things going on, where a lot of the Arctic is just sort of like, you know, open open territory, and there's been discussion of should you be able to put, you know, uh, weaponry in these in these regions, and how much security, you know, f- you know, forces could you deploy to the Arctic if you wanted to? Obviously, countries, you know, the Scandinavia, Russia, they're closer, Canada, you know, have a have an interest in, in this type of thing. Um, and there, too, the diplomacy is kind of fraught with all these similar types of issues. So I, you can kind of see how both in space and in the Arctic, uh, there are these frontiers where it's, it's, it's a little bit unregulated from an international law perspective. Uh, and that causes tensions potentially and causes, you know, the, the potential for, for escalation, which we obviously worry about quite a bit. The idea of using space as like one of the domains of conflict, it raises all these issues that, you know, we talk a lot about in cyber as well. You mentioned the Arctic is one of these places where like here's a domain where it's hard to know how you can make threats that will help you in a second domain, sometimes called cross-domain deterrence. It's this idea that I, I could forestall a Chinese invasion of Taiwan by saying, if you do that, 
we will take out your satellite systems that allow you to do command and control on those forces. And so you shouldn't do it, right? It's, it's hard to know whether those kinds of threats in one domain like space can have a real impact on the what countries do in another domain. Be- because there are all kinds of, uh, of issues with demonstrating your capabilities in space, um, with understanding another party's vulnerabilities in space. And so you mm-hmm. run into all these issues with like, it's very unclear. It's much clearer to say, even if, even if this is also hard to do, don't invade me or I'll nuke you. That's like a, like a much clearer kind of a signal than to say, if you do this one thing in this domain, I will do this other thing in space or vice versa. So it, when you do this kind of cross-domain deterrence where you make a threat in one place and expect it to pay, pay off in another place, uh, you run into all, all kinds of challenges. And I think that makes space policy um, even more difficult. Yeah. I, I totally agree. It, even as, as simple as something like costly signaling, like what is the equivalent of costly signaling right. in space? You know, it's not obvious. Um, and I think there's other domains like that. Cyber security, I think, is, is one of the other ones where this, this happens quite a bit. So I, I'm completely on board with your take. All right, let's move on to uh, one last question for today. Um, this is from Sophie, and Sophie was kind enough to leave a voicemail. Hi, I've really been enjoying the podcast, and now I have a question for the podcast. And my question is, what are your thoughts on the McDonald's peace theory? Ah, uh, one of my favorites. So, Marcus, maybe you can start by explaining to me, who has never heard of this, what is the McDonald's peace theory? The McDonald's peace theory is a relatively new theory that's based on very old ideas. And it comes from Tom Friedman's book, The Lexus and the Olive Tree. Uh, and he has this this part of the book where he talks about um, this, this theory that he has uh, that no two countries that have a McDonald's restaurant will go to war with, with one another. And the rationale behind the theory is that if you've sustained enough economic development and globalization to be able to have a McDonald's, then it's likely that that implies that your country has sort of adopted globalization. It has a stake in the global economic system. um, And that, by virtue of being in that system, makes armed conflict less likely because you don't want to you don't want to, uh, you know, uproot or derail the gravy train. Like things are going well for you. You're part of the, the sort of, you know, economic system. So why would you ever go to war? War is costly, et cetera. What, what is essentially the, the argument is that, and this goes back to like liberalism in its, in its very early days, like, you know, John Locke had sort of similar ideas. Um, economic interdependence prevents war, right? It's like if I'm dependent on you for trade, it's unlikely I want to go to war with you because I'm dependent on the ability to trade with you. And so therefore that encourages peace uh, over time. Now, there are offshoots of this argument. So other people have made uh, similar claims about, you know, democratic peace, of course. So like if you're a democracy, you're therefore unlikely to go to a war with another democracy. Or capitalist peace. Capitalist peace. We could we could do we could do several podcasts uh, mm-hmm. on these topics. I don't want to, but we could. Uh, and it's very complicated, and the empirical evidence is uh, all over the place. But mixed, it, mixed. It's mixed. It's mixed. Yeah. But, it, but several people have made careers sort of looking at this, and we could we could look at their their insights. Um, the reason that this came up uh, in the context of our class, though, we were talking about surprise, surprise, the Cold War, uh, and. In particular, the Berlin Wall and what the idea behind the Berlin Wall was and the sort of, you know, creation of, of East Berlin and West Berlin. And one of the points that I was I was making is that if you look at photographs uh, in, like, let's say the 1960s of Checkpoint Charlie, you know, it's like it's barren. There's like nothing there. Uh, 
uh, and and you you go past you know 1991 when the Berlin Wall falls down, and very quickly you see now there's a Starbucks, there's a McDonald's. You know, East Berlin now has all the trappings of of sort of Western capitalism, which they didn't have before because that they didn't have the democratic you know capitalist system. So now they're enjoying the the fruits of that. Um, but but the point that I made in class, uh, which is very interesting, is that to this day in 2023, if you look at economic data uh, with respect to East Berlin, their economy. Same city, just, you know, geographically to the east uh, is still lagging behind West Berlin. Right. So you still have this McDonald's, you still have Starbucks, but it's 30 years later and you still have not had a sort of full rejuvenation of of the economy in East Berlin. And if you extrapolate that further eastward, you could see the the sort of remnants of the Cold War uh, affecting, you know, all these Eastern European uh, countries. So. So the the argument is not so much that you know the McDonald's um, or the existence of McDonald's is going to have anything to do with with war and peace. I don't I don't buy that argument for a reason I'll talk about in a second. But more just to sort of show like number one, you can have a McDonald's, you can have a Starbucks, and that can change the landscape of of your city. But these sort of like long term, long durée, like economic uh, things that have been going on for thirty years are still present uh, to this day, which I think is is kind of fascinating. Why this argument doesn't work to me. Uh, can be ref- talked about in sort of uh, empirical and theoretical ways. So first of all, uh, countries with McDonald's have gone to war with one another. So they're, they're you know, NATO, uh, led by the United States in 1999, bombed Yugoslavia uh, uh, in response to, you know, the, the sort of atrocities that were occurring and the genocide and all that. There were McDonald's in NATO countries. There were, there were McDonald's in uh, Yugoslavia. Now you might say, okay, well, it's NATO doing the bombing, so they said NATO didn't have a McDonald's. Uh, in 2008, uh, the the Russian Georgia war, McDonald's were present in in Russia and Georgia, right? So empirically, it's not actually true that states, countries with McDonald's don't don't fight with one another. But I think there's another sort of bigger issue with this with this idea, and that is that if if you're thinking about this causally, you might think like the McDonald's is causing peace for some some reason, right? It's like, I have a McDonald's, and so therefore that that is showing me that economic interdependence is causing uh, the peace. But it could very well be just this this correlation where actually having a peaceful existence in your country allows you to have a McDonald's. And so that was the point that I was was trying to make in, in class, which is you see Starbucks and you see... Uh, McDonald's pop up in Berlin, not during the the crisis, not during the middle of the Cold War, but once the Cold War is ever over, once peace has finally kind of come, the Berlin Wall comes down, people can fully move, you know, back and forth. You don't have Berlin crises anymore. You don't have nuclear standoffs. And what do you know? You also start to see McDonald's and and Starbucks. So it could very well be this is actually not about necessarily causing peace, but rather a function of or what you get once you have peace. Yeah, I think that applies to kind of more. I don't know, empirically sound or or more academic versions of this theory. We talk about theories of economic development and conflict or economic interdependence and conflict or capitalism and conflict. There's always this question, aren't you more likely to get economic development if you have peace, right? And so there, there's a there's a causal arrow problem here. We don't know what is leading to what. I think empirically, one big issue here is that richer countries are much more likely to go to conflict, and mm-hmm. to get into conflict in general. And so to the extent that those are also more likely to be capitalist countries, you run into um, kind of a countervailing I- issue as well, where you would expect, I think, based on that observation, um, that richer countries have you know more resources in order to engage in conflict. Those might also be more likely to have McDonald's, right? And so that might also push in in the opposite direction. Well, I was just the other thing that bothers me about this, and 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 
so we can attack it empirically. We can attack it uh, theoretically, which we've done, I think, a pretty good job of doing. There's also this, like, normative. I know you don't, you're not big on sort of normative concerns, but I, I do also just kind of resent the notion that I think is built into this, that, that sort of capitalism is kind of peace-promoting. Like, it's inherently like a... Uh, a system that will like give you peace. If it gives you McDonald's, it gives you Starbucks, and therefore you know it gives you peace. And that you know to me is is it, it leads to a couple different things. I think it leads to some views that we then need to go promote these things. Sometimes with the use of force to sort of give democracy and capitalism to countries that don't have it. But it also ignores a lot of the sort of like exploitation, the injustices, all the stuff that is also comes with often comes with capitalist. Uh, markets, which which don't get talked about, so so it's kind of focus on like the so called peace, you know, part of this, um, and and ignore the fact that actually like there's a lot of things about capitalism that aren't inherently peaceful and are exploitive, and you know what what it takes to create a McDonald's in certain countries, you know, might not actually be good for the people that that live there. All kinds of different stuff it, that that has to be part of the conversation too, is for me anyway, to have a a sort of full full sort of understanding of what this theory is all about and, and potentially its implications. Yeah, just to lend a little academic veneer to this discussion. I mean, so the the kind of seminal work on the capitalist piece is is from Eric Gartsky, and his argument. And there have been some critiques of this work um, in terms of, in particular, the empirics um, and how they're they're structured. But on the theory side, you know, his argument has a lot to do with territorial acquisition and land, and mm -hmm. the the you know where the what's the what's the Marxist term for this? The means of the, the production? Means of production. Yeah. yeah. So, so like when you, when you switch to a uh, capital intensive society versus a land intensive society, it changes your incentives for conquest because you don't need the land, right? Um, the, the land isn't as helpful to you. And so that creates a kind of a dynamic that ought to lead to capitalist countries being less interested in invading their neighbors versus, you know, the kind of non-capitalist um, countries where land is a more important um, means of production. Uh, so there is a there is there is a theory behind this. There are some empirical uh, discussions about these things, but I, I also kind of bristle at the Tom Friedman theory by anecdote approach. You know, <laughs> like I, I was in, I sat down with it. Uh, there was a cab driver um, told me uh, this thing. And now it's like now it's now we need to talk about it as a theory of international relations. It annoys me, um, but I do this for a living, so you know that that kind of thing bothers me. I agree with ninety nine percent of that. Although I do think that um, anecdotes can serve a useful sort of epistemological point, and maybe we could talk about this in the next pod. Uh, I don't think we want to get into epistemology right now, but I, I, I do think sometimes anecdotes are are shunned by uh, the sort of scientific process, and they're sort of like looked down upon. But but a good anecdote. If well crafted, I think can get you to think about a, a situation in a slightly different way, which which in and of itself can have productive effects. So I don't think we should be creating U.S. foreign policy based on anecdotes. Um, but if they do cause somebody to like think about something in a like slightly different, out of the box way, might not actually be that that bad of a thing. Yeah, I don't disagree with that. I mean, maybe as a as a place to start uh, to to help you kind of look down a new research path and then gather actual data. To right. support you, to support your, your theory. I think, I think maybe anecdotes are useful in that respect. Yeah. All right, Marcus, I think we have solved several issues today. We uh, created peace in space. We dealt with something to do with McDonald's and uh, we solved U.S. political dysfunction. So not bad for, for an hour. Uh, if you want to reach out and, and tell us what we should be talking about or where Marcus was wrong about something, you can reach us at cheaptalkpod.com 
at gmail.com or go to speakpipe.com slash cheap talk to leave a voicemail, which we will play um, uh, maybe. And if you would, please subscribe to the podcast. I know a number of you are going to the website um, to access the pod, but you can subscribe in your podcast player of choice. It will appear automatically every time there's a new episode, which is about once a week. Please subscribe in Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever fine podcast products are available. Um, and if you do and you like it, leave us a review. We appreciate that. It helps others find the podcast. Marcus, uh, looking forward to talking to you next time. All right. And I just say, if anybody's interested in uh, summits taking place on satellites, let me know. Uh, you might want to edit out. I mean, I don't I, I know what you're saying with but like, I, I'm not I'm not kidding. All right. Keep it in. I mean, I, I, you know, I just, I'm, I'm adding this rant <laughs> to the intro. I'm just thinking about your career prospects at this school, you know, where the, the, the... I got tenure. <laughs> <laughs>